media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Have you ever thought when you read in the New Testament, Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament once Christ comes on the scene, how you would have reacted to some of those different situations that are there? You know, a lot of us can't say, well, I don't know that I'd be part of that crowd that would have cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And and we don't know. We really don't know. Today, as we look at this text, Jesus goes back to his hometown. It's where he was raised. It's a little town of Nazareth. Uh, Scholars tell us that more than likely it was a town of 200 to maybe at most 600. Small little hamlet, just uh, pretty insignificant. We really don't see it mentioned in the Bible other places. Um, even though we see little places like Bethlehem being mentioned. And so Nazareth is just kind of this little stop sign uh, there in the Galilean area. And this is where Christ is from. And, and he goes back home. And when we begin to, to see this, we're going, okay, certainly he's going to get like a hero's welcome. And what we find in these uh, opening verses of chapter 6 is, is kind of anything but. When we look at Jesus' ministry at this point, if Mark is writing in a chronological order and we have every indication that he is, we kind of see a really kind of vast separation of reaction to belief. We see time and time again where people are amazed, they're astonished, they're marveling at Christ. And yet Christ is set in the very first chapter of Mark, if you remember back in Mark 1.15, he kind of said the purpose, and really, if you want to say the measurable scale of what he thought was his purpose, and I hate to use this word success, but he said, this is what my ministry is all about. In Mark 1.15, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. These are This is my ministry. Repentance, you change your way of thinking, and doing so, you change your way of life, and you believe the gospel. What is this gospel? That he is the savior of the world that we have sin in our lives and that he is going as a willing sacrifice as the Lamb of God to die for our sins. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And so he puts those two things up, repentance, which is kind of you know an inward thing that then turns outward, and this belief in the gospel as kind of the two standards of his ministry. And what we see so far in this ministry, probably a year, year and a half into it, maybe even as much as two years into the ministry now, is that we do see a lot of people being astonished, amazed. But repentance and belief, we, we really don't see a lot of that. We see little, you know, little areas and little pulls of it, but we don't see this overwhelming trend of thousands and thousands and thousands of people just following Christ. Now, they follow Christ physically because they're hoping to get healed. They're hoping to have supper. You know, they, they hear about him doing these miraculous things with food and feeding thousands and thousands. And so it's not that there's a lack of people following Christ in a physical way or in an attractional way. But are they following Christ in a way of Christ? Has their minds been transformed have their lives truly seen the repentance of their sin, and now they, they see him as the Savior. And we really don't see that. Mark chapter 1, verse 22, if we go back, they were astonished at his teaching. 
Mark 1.27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, Who is this, this man who teaches with authority? Mark chapter 2, verse 12. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out and before them so that they were all amazed and they glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. In the last couple of weeks, Mark 5.20. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And then just a couple of weeks ago, Mark 5.42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Jesus is amazing people. By his miracles, by his teaching with the authority. He's not teaching going, you know, I, I pretty much think this is the right thing. No, he's teaching with an exactness. And they can tell the difference between his teaching and other rabbis, him and, and other leaders in the synagogue. And, and so everybody's making this kind of awareness that they're amazed, but is being amazed at Christ the same as turning your life and really following Christ? See, when he comes home, you would think that maybe by this time, word had gotten out. And certainly the people of Nazareth had heard about all these miracles. They'd heard about all these different things, healings and, and how he had cast out demons, how he'd calmed the seas, even raised the dead. Surely that story of this little girl that we just read about in Mark 5 has gotten back and they're going, you would expect maybe a hometown hero's welcome when he returns to Nazareth. Maybe a parade, even a small city. Hometown hero has done so well. Maybe even granting the keys of the city. (laughs) And that's not what we find. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He that is Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were what? Astonished. So many of them man, he really does teach with authority. For the most part, we don't know how many times Jesus returned back to Nazareth. This is one time. Another possible time that we'll look at in just a little while is a time that's mentioned in Luke chapter 4. There are some scholars that say those are two separate times because they see distinctions between the two. Others would say, hey, I think that this is one of those times that Luke is telling this same story that Mark is. And we really don't know. And yet there's beauty in either one of those stories since we really don't know what is the possibilities of that. But for the most part, Jesus isn't like he just goes home all the time. And so he begins, he comes, and and he's asked to read and to teach Sometimes they just read, but he's actually called to teach that day. And he teaches. And their first reaction, they heard him and they were astonished. Look at the rest of verse 2. Where did this man get these things? We don't think that he taught under a rabbi. Where where was his theology degree from? Where did he go to seminary? They saw him as a carpenter's son. And they're they're thinking, okay, how did he get this kind of knowledge, this kind of command over truth? Second, where is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? If we stopped right here, we would think, okay, they really are amazed and they're they're, they're maybe going to be turning to him and see him of who he claims to be, the very savior of the world. They were astonished. They see his wisdom. They they see how mighty he is. And yet look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter's, the, uh, the son of Mary and the brother of James and, and Joseph and, and Judas and Simon? Oh, 
And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now what just happened? <laughs> they're astonished. They're, they're, they go from this place of amazement to this place of being incensed. They go from this place of complimenting to this place of complaining about him. What happened? It's the claims that he's making. If this is Luke chapter 4, then he was reading from Isaiah and teaching from Isaiah uh, a messianic prophecy that day. If it's separate, we can still assume for the most part that when the things that Jesus are declaring that day are very much that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And this is the place that is offensive to them. We're never told directly in Mark's gospel the reason, but we have some clues. Look again at verse 3. They ask, is this not the carpenter? Didn't we see him grow up? I mean, for the most part, if we kind of go with the biblical timeline, we know that at least 28, if not, you know, maybe up to the age of 30, that Jesus is a carpenter, that he takes up his uh, earthly father's role and that he made benches and tables and chairs and different things. And maybe a lot of people in Nazareth said, you know, look, our table, he made it. This is a carpenter. He's not the Messiah. And, and then we really don't notice it so much in our culture, but the second thing that they ask, is this not Mary's son? Is really a dig because in that culture, they referred to men by their father. They, they would have more appropriately said, is this not Joseph's son? And it's a little bit of a dig that we don't quite get in our culture quite as much. But when they call him Mary's son, it's, it's just kind of a, it's not flattering at all. And then the last part, we can kind of even speculate that, uh, or along with that, we can speculate that maybe rumor had gotten out that maybe Joseph really wasn't Jesus's real father. Not so much looking to the miracle that Jesus is the son of the living God, but the speculation, the rumor. Carly and I, we've lived in a small town before, and we love the small town field down in Bainbridge, Georgia. It was great. I mean, on Fridays, we'd go out to the city park, and the, the high school band would be there, and we would have uh, sack lunches and stuff. It was really cool. But one thing we found out really, really fast in this small town is that everybody's business was everybody else's business. I don't know if you've ever lived in a small town, but it seemed like the rumor mill was just huge, and that everybody kind of knew everybody else's business. And so you kind of had, you know, this two sides of the same coin, this beauty of the intimacy of everybody kind of knowing one another. But on the other flip side, everybody really knowing about everyone. And perhaps that's what's happening here in their responses. They, they say, is he not the brother of, and he begins to list the, the brother's name and, and, and the sister's names. In other words, there's nothing special about this family. This is just a blue-collar worker. He's a carpenter. We're not against carpenters, but great teacher maybe because we just experienced that. But Messiah of the world? See, even in the face of amazement, they can't get over the humanity of Christ. Great teacher, yes. Messiah, no. In fact, the very claim of being Messiah uh, was what led in Luke chapter 4, this other story of when he went to Nazareth. Now, let me pose two different scenarios. One scenario is that the Luke 4 passage is another time that Jesus went to to Nazareth, his hometown, a year before. That time, he also is teaching. He's teaching uh, from Isaiah about the Messiahship, and they get so riled up 
Nazareth is built on a, a cliff. It's, it's really a, an amazing city there. And it's built on a cliff. And they run him out of town, out of the synagogue, to the cliff. And they're about to throw him off the cliff. Go read Luke chapter 4. It's an amazing story. It may be one and the same as this. But let's paint both of these scenarios. If it is a different story, then what grace Jesus shows that he comes back a year later after they tried to kill him and that he's still there loving them and trying to teach them truth. If it's the same story, then it just adds the complexity to what we find in Mark's story. That these people aren't just kind of cross-handed mad. They want to kill Jesus. Look what it says in Luke chapter 4. Verse 28, 29. Again, whether this is the same story or it's a parallel story that happened about a year before, uh, you can make support of both of those. But look what it says. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I mean, disagreement is one thing. Wrath? And they rose up and they drove him out of town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. There's one thing to say, okay, we're not going to follow you. We're not going to buy into this whole Messiah thing. There's another thing to be filled with wrath and say, okay, we really want to just take you out. We want to kill you. This is how his hometown people react to him. There is no giving of the city keys. There is no hometown parade. So what's the problem? What's this tripping point? How do amazed people go to angry people? And it seems like it's only one thing that is the tripping point, and that is Jesus' claim that he's the Messiah. They affirm that he's a great teacher. They affirm that they've heard these stories, that he's been even able to raise the dead. But they cannot quite grasp that somebody who grew up, that they were so familiar with, with 28 to 30 years, right there in their hometown, could actually be the savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah, and especially to come from that family. Have you read in the Bible, it says, what good can come out of Nazareth? That was because they didn't really see Nazareth as this special place. And it kept them from seeing Christ as the Messiah, the promised one of God, sent to take the sins away from the world. We, We see the same offense in our own culture today. We see this persuasion to kind of have a, a handshake knowledge or relationship with Christ. I mean, I'm always amazed, and please don't hear this in a derogatory kind of way. I just hear it for what it is. Um, but when somebody from Hollywood, a great actor or actress or something, gets up there and they're accepting their Oscar or whatever award that is, and I just want to thank God. And it's a very generic thing, and, you know, we get all excited. Oh, you just thank God. And yet, when you see that a little bit closer, and if you would explore that a little bit more, were they calling out that Jesus is the Messiah, the only way? No, that's when it really gets offensive to a lot of people. Who are we to say that Jesus is the only way to God? Do you see where that becomes the tripping point in our culture? I mean, have you seen that? That we kind of like this generic God, so that we can talk about, yeah, there's a God out there. There's a creator. Yeah, we think that the planets and the stars that we sing about in that one song, yeah, we see that there had to be a creator for that. But, but let's not boil it down just to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we stay amazed of a God who create. And, and yet there's this 
adversarial kind of relationship that we have that you would claim that one person, Jesus Christ, could truly be the answer to all the world. When it says that the people of Nazareth took offense at him, there in that verse, it means that they stumbled over him. The, the actual Greek word is scandalon, or it's a version of the word scandalon. That's the root word. What do you hear when you hear the word scandalon in Greek? Scandal. That's where we got our word scandal and scandalize. comes from this Greek word. It means to stumble over. This is a tripping point. This is something we can't quite grasp. In fact, we, we trip over it because we find disbelief in that. And what that really means here, as we apply it to this text, is that, that even though they saw and were amazed at the teaching of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the tripping point was the scandal that Jesus was the very Son of God, the Messiah that had long been promised. And Jesus nails that in the next verse. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. The people of Nazareth were so familiar with Christ and, and so familiar with his background that they couldn't make that faith leap to say this truly is the Messiah of the world. In my ministry, I've seen a lot of people like that. Oh, Bobby, I'll acknowledge that there's a God. There's got to be a God. There's got to be some kind of a creator out there. But I think, and then they'll fill in that blank. And if they don't fill it in with what the, the Word says, what the Bible says of, of who Christ is, this thing seems so divisive in our world today because they're wrong. They're wrong. Either he is this Messiah, and so we have to take all the claims of Christ, and he said, there is no other way except through me that you can get to the Father. I am the only one. Either that is true or... It's not. And, and we have to make, by faith, a decision on that. But don't think that we can take a little bit of Jesus and then mix it with a little bit of this and that we can put him up there with all of a sudden, just say, okay, you know, we just want to affirm that he was a great teacher. Just in the same way that Buddha was and Mahatma Gandhi and, and all these other great teachers of our time, they really taught some really good stuff. Jesus was not just a great teacher. He was. He teached with, taught with authority. That authority came because he's the son of God. And, and this offense of not being more broad-minded is the very offense that many of you perhaps have had within your family, within uh, your friends and others that, hey, I'll give you that, you know, you can have your beliefs, but I have my beliefs over here. And, and couldn't we all just really be right when it all... Don't all these roads eventually re- lead to the same place? And that's where Jesus says no. And that's a scandal to some people. Because it seems mean, hateful. It, may, it seems very divisive. And, and Jesus would be the first one to say, yeah, it is divisive. But it's truth. In a world where we really want to be nice people, in a world where we really want to be inclusive, in a world where we really strive to, to, to take in people's thoughts and feelings and opinions and different things like that, we see actually the opposite happening in our culture today. We see more and more division. We see more and more opportunity because of social media for people to express their expressed thoughts on different things. And, and it further divides and divides and divides and divides. Well, here, 
Jesus is being <laughs> dividing. Not in a mean way, but in the most loving way. I know this oversimplistic, and I, I apologize for the simplicity of it. But if, but if we had the answer to, to a particular cancer, and we said, okay, this cures it, and we knew without a doubt that it cured it, then to give somebody else anything but that medicine to treat their cancer really wouldn't be loving. Well, I really don't like that because it's the color orange, or it's this, or it tastes bad, or you have to get a shot. You know, I, I want it in a pill form. And all of a sudden they reject it because it's not what they want. It's not how they fashioned it. Folks, either Christ is the Messiah or he's not. It's not one of those things there's a version, there's an adaptive, uh, a way that you can adapt the ministry of Christ. He either is the Messiah or he's not. Either the things that he said were true are they are false. And this is where one of the great thinkers of our time, C.S. Lewis, said, you know, either he is the Lord, the lunatic, or a liar. He either was just crazy and thought himself to be the Messiah, or he knew that he wasn't and he lied about it and he openly deceived people, or he truly was the Lord. And really we're left with that. And that's what these people were left with. But here's the tragedy. What's the application of this, Pastor? You know, how does that apply to us today? Because I've put my faith and my trust in Jesus. Look at verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, don't read that, that he could not. Read it that he would not because he's not going to act on their unbelief. It's not that somehow Jesus was trying really hard to heal people. And he said, man, why isn't this working here in Nazareth? No, that it seems like there's so far in, in the elements of Mark and the other Gospels that Jesus heals in response to faith. Sometimes even the faith of friends, you know, because of their faith. Remember the paralytic? Because of their faith. But he responds to faith. And he does the healing miracles in response to this. And here, he's not seeing faith, but he sees rather the opposite. He sees unbelief. And so he doesn't do miracles and healings there, except for just a few, where he finds just a spot here and a spot there in his own hometown. Mark 6.6. I tell you often, hey, this is one of the saddest verses of the Bible. Mark 6.6, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And he, that is Jesus, marveled at their unbelief. And he went out among them in the village teachings. He, he left and he went and taught others. Only two places in the Gospels that we see Jesus marveled or amazed. Only two places. One time is with the uh, Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7, verse 9. He looks at that Roman centurion and he sees great faith. And it says that he was amazed at his faith. And then here, that he marvels, he's amazed at their unbelief. His hometown, his, his own family. At this point, his brothers are not believers. They actually, you know, uh, if you look back in Mark and you look at the other Gospels, they think, yeah, this is our brother and we love him, but yeah, we think he might have a little bit of a mental problem here. He's not really thinking soundly. I mean, most of us maybe would come to that conclusion. I don't know how many of you have brothers and sisters, but if all of a sudden if your brother came up to you and said, I am the Messiah... I think most of us say, look, you know, you try to be a good man, but you are far from the Messiah. And we'd be able to discount that instantly. And what we see maybe here is a little bit of that. But here's the bottom line. They're amazed, and yet at the same time, 
they stumble. What is the stumbling point? His claim that he is the Messiah. In our culture today, and it could be a part of our own belief, when all of a sudden, you know, are you sure that Christ is the only way? Or if somebody would say to you, you know, why can't a good person go to heaven? If somebody's really done good and they've been a good person, why can't they go to heaven? I mean, those are good questions, and yet the Bible answers those. The Bible would say, well, actually, if we want to look at it in a theological sense, there is no such thing as a good person. We're all sinners, and we need a Savior. The one that I think that we fall victim to, even in our own mindset sometimes. Well, you know, if I was God, I would fill in the blank. I mean, have you ever thought that? (laughs) For a moment, you know, you see something happening, and just not the way that you thought it was going to happen. You know, and if I was God, I would probably... I would wipe that person out and I would really bless that person because they're, and yet what sometimes we see is the person who is not standing for Christ is prospering and the ones that believe in Christ are not prospering. And we're going, man, if I was God, I would probably equal some of this out. One of the challenges that we had when, when Marty and I were writing, uh, putting together a book uh, about all the attributes of God, um, and that's why we called it He Is Who He Is, is that we really do feel like, you know, we have this tendency to, to be a, kind of like, get our God like we get our Subway sandwich. I don't like pickles. <laughs> oh, I like, I love banana peppers. And I want this kind of bread, and I want it toasted. No, I don't want it toasted. Oh, I want this, and I want this kind of cheese. And we go through an assembly line of all the different things that we think that God should be, and we kind of go through, and we get our God. Folks, when we do that, we are no better than these people because there's a, there's a sense of unbelief in that. There are things in the Old Testament that I completely, well, at Life Group the other night we were talking about, you know, if there was just one book that you could tell a new believer to go start with. And none of us picked Numbers, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, we're going, that's probably not the best place just to start because all of a sudden you get in there and you see some of these really fierce laws. Or we said we probably wouldn't start with the story of Achan where Achan takes the devoted things. And so they take him, his family, and his animals and they, and they kill them all. We're going, we probably wouldn't start with those stories because those seem so weird to us. And yet I want you to know that those are holy things. I may not grasp the holiness of it, but I believe that if God said those things and he did those things and he stated those things and he were for those things, that they are holy because he is a holy God. So what do we learn from this? How do, how do we you know, kind of put this into action? Two things. Number one, be very, very careful any time that we want to make a God of our own. Be very, very careful when we start, well, God, why are you doing this? That we, by faith, just trust in, in, in God and his perfection. We trust in God and his wisdom. His ways are not our ways. It's not that we will always have understanding, but that we have this faith, this belief, that truly God is doing what is best, even when we don't understand it. And then the second application is, is right along with that. The tragedy of unbelief. Can unbelief come into the life of a Christian? I think we battle with that every day. Now, that doesn't take our salvation away because if we've truly have put our trust and our faith in Christ and his finished work, then we are saved. We are justified before a holy God. 
So where does unbelief fit into if it does come into the life of a believer? I, I think what it cost us is what it cost them here. That it said that Jesus would not or could not do any other healing. He couldn't do further things in Nazareth. Why? Because of their unbelief. We limit our life, and I think we limit our understanding. I think we limit our peace, and I think we limit our joy, and a lot of other things. When all of a sudden we have this element of unbelief, because somehow God did it differently than we would have done it. And so, Christ, you are Lord. And I don't understand everything, and I certainly don't comprehend the, 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 the depth of all that you're doing here, but I put my total faith and trust, not only in you for my salvation, but for my life. And I think that's what we take away from this passage. That we would take away, okay, God, not only do we need to have a firm commitment to, to the, that Christ is the Messiah, but daily... This repenting and believing the gospel that he said was the mark of his kingdom, that still happens in the life of a believer. Uh, repenting and believing is not a one-time thing. It certainly is the, the start of salvation, and that's when we trust and put our faith in Christ. But I don't know about you, but I need to repent and believe in the gospel every day because I'm confronted by my own thoughts, by my cultural thoughts, my binding the culture that, ah, God, why don't you do it this way? Or, you know, what about this, God? This morning, Allison Crawford is going to come and she's going to tell, uh, share with us her story of transformation. And um, uh, by the way, thank you. you. You've really responded well. Last week I heard from so many people that just enjoyed so much the couples that came and shared. But Allison, if you would come at this time, and again, we've given you the impossible thing to somehow... Uh, uh, wrap up your story of Christ and transformation in just uh, a few um, minutes. But uh, tell us about what Christ has done for you. Um, so I'm Allison, um, and Andy and I, my husband, have been here, we were thinking about it last night, almost 10 years, which is weird to say we're very offended still that we don't count as young marrieds anymore, so that hurts our feelings <laughs> a whole lot. Um, but I was really encouraged last week, Taylor and Kayla, thank y'all for sharing. Cause it really just, I think, um, so often, maybe not for everybody, but for me as somebody who didn't grow up in a Christian home, I think, um, I think the enemy can a lot of times seek to discredit me and make me feel like I am not worthy of sharing or I don't know enough or I can't lead that group. Um, you know, and that's a really... That's a thing that I think is still is hard. Like it's hard to do it today. Um, but so I did not grow up in a Christian home. Um, I grew up with a lot of um, just brokenness in my house. My mom was an alcoholic and um, passed away when I was 21. And um, just still a lot of brokenness kind of on my side of the family. But I um, got invited my very first week on campus at UGA um, to one of their campus ministries and kind of never stopped from there. Um and came to know Jesus kind of my freshman year um, at UGA. So um, I think kind of two things that have stood out lately to me that I think God has really used um, to transform me, um, because so much of early on, uh, I did a lot of it alone. I mean, I was at church alone. I came, you know, accepted Christ alone. I was baptized. There was nobody else there. It was just me. Um, you know, I remember going to a bookstore and buying a Bible because I didn't have one. <laughs> so um, a lot of that I did alone. And I think that community is a really big way that God has 
um, use that to transform me and doing that with other believers, um, especially kind of the stage of life we're in. It's not as much weddings and baby showers and birthdays anymore. It's sitting with friends through, you know, cancer and miscarriage and losing their parents. And I think doing community with people like that can really change your heart. I think it can really um, gear you more towards them than yourself. And that's, you know, you know that's from God because that doesn't come naturally to us. Um, And I think the second way that really God has transformed me is um, through spiritual disciplines. And I know that kind of sounds... I don't know. I don't know about how everybody feels with spiritual disciplines, but I think in the beginning, I didn't know. I, I mean, I literally, I'd never grown up praying or tithing or um, going to church or reading the Bible. That was nothing I knew how to do. And so it definitely started as a check mark to do, you know, it's like, these are the things I know I'm supposed to do. Um, but I think over time, um, don't, don't discount or don't underestimate what God can do with you being faithful with those things over a year or five years or 10 years. And, um, they're not a check mark anymore. They're not a box to check off or a thing on the to-do list. They are gifts from God that um, invite us into his presence every single day. And I think that is the biggest thing that I'm, I love hearing people's transformations, but I think also the biggest transformation he's doing in all of us is just that slow, steady, everyday kind of transformation. Um, and if I'm right, we get bonus points because it's a rainy day for being here. So <laughs> that's right. You bonus I'll get points. bonus points on that box today. <laughs> so that's my God. Thank you Thank so you. much. <laughs> I love these stories because it really does show us the, the humanity behind it instead of just the theological principles. We make much of theology. Theology is the truth that, that we build our lives upon of Christ. And yet to see that lived out in all these various lives it's the really cool part. So, Allison, thank you so much. I appreciate so much you sharing today. And, again, I realize that we could give you a whole hour, and you could just fill uh, that hour with stories of how God has miraculously done one thing after another in your life. But we thank you for sharing this morning. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. and Fathers, we come to this time when we just... Think upon, uh, Father, what we call our reflection song. Father, somehow how we try to sum up what we've seen in your word this morning. Father, I thank you that we can come and, and end with this song of amazing grace, Father. Because, Father, that, that is the simplicity of it. And I don't know this side of heaven, Father, if we're really going to know how amazing that grace really is. In the same way that these people were amazed and they were astonished and they marveled because they'd never seen anything like that. Father, we've never seen anything like your grace to our lives. So we are amazed at this amazing grace. But Father, one day we're going to be before you. And this very community that Allison just spoke of, Father, we're going to gather around your throne. And we're going to understand for the, maybe for the first time, really the depth of our sin, how, how really <laughs> deep that went. Because we will see your holiness. And I don't know if we're going to sing this song or not, Father. But if we do, we will sing it unlike we've ever sung it before, Father. For in the picture, Father, and in the face of your holiness, Father, we will see the grace that so amazingly has saved a wretch like I. We love you, Father. And we sing this song in victory this morning. 
We sing it in gratitude. Father, we sing it in worship. We sing it with every fiber of our mind and our soul, as much as we can comprehend that you have saved us. And then, Father, you have broken the chains that bound us before you. So, Father, accept this song as our, as our prayer this morning, just as an affirmation of who you are as we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.